We are going um, through the book of Judges this semester in RUF. And, and uh, so if you have your sheet in front of you, you can go ahead and reference it now. And we are going to see every single week uh, as we look at the book of Judges that it is a series of true stories that are, written with the in, that, that are written to God's people with the intent of showing God's people God's grace and to call them to faith and obedience. Uh, so with that in mind, let me just read this passage out of Judges chapter 2, and then we'll pray for God to help us, and then we'll look at it together, okay? Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. (laughs) After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed, handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is God's word. Let me pray for us, and then we'll consider it together, okay? So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, your mercy and for your grace, and pray that now you would be merciful and gracious with us as we look at this together. We would pray, Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? Uh, You know that we have no hope of understanding apart from your help, and so we need you to help us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember as a kid watching cartoons or watching TV shows, there was this recurrent theme in any show that I happened to watch where somebody inevitably would get stuck in quicksand. I mean, maybe if if you grew up on the same shows I watched, just at some point somebody was in quicksand. You know, they're walking along, talking, and all of a sudden they stop because it's like their shoes just got glued to the ground and they can't move. And you know, whenever you're stuck in quicksand, if you try to struggle... What happens, right? You start sinking faster. And so as a kid, I mean, this is very terrifying to think you could get stuck in one of these 
spots. And you're, you're, there's nothing you can do if nobody's around to you know, give you a stick or something to get you out. And you're just waiting for your inevitable demise as you drown in quicksand. And so as a kid, I, de- I developed a bit of a phobia around um, puddles of mud. <laughs> because quicksand is deceptive. You never know how deep it is. It may look just like a little puddle, but what if it's like 10 feet deep and you step in it and game over, right? So I, um, that maybe explains some of some of my issues as an adult. But um, the reason I bring this up is because the book of Judges, in many ways, is going to tell a story about us that's very similar. That says that we, too, get stuck in these patterns of sin and addiction where it feels like we get sucked deeper and deeper from life. And it feels like we really are drowning. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you may even uh, be here tonight, uh, where you feel like you're getting pulled deeper and deeper into sin and addiction, and it feels like life, and God is getting farther and farther away from you, and it feels like you're just you're buried deeper and deeper in your own depression and misery and sin and death. Now, slowly, uh, over time, you feel yourself maybe drifting from the Lord, where you feel like, uh, I don't even know if he exists, because you're so far from him. Now, the reason uh, I bring this up is because Judges is going to explain what this whole process is like in terms of a cycle. And so what I want to do tonight is, is I want to focus in on what this cycle of sin is, and then talk about how to get out. And so really, those are the two things I want to talk about tonight, what the cycle is and how to get out. Very simple. And just for your expectations, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on what this cycle actually is. So let's talk about what the cycle is. What, what do I mean by that? Well, in Judges chapter 2, which we just read, it lays out for you and kind of dissects the different parts of what this cycle is that's going to repeat itself all throughout this book and which some of you may know intimately from your own life. And the cycle has four elements to it. Sin, slavery, supplication, salvation. The four steps of the cycle of sin and death. Sin, slavery, supplication, salvation. And I just want to look at each of these one at a time. First step, sin. To make things even more complicated, there's two stages to the first step, which you'll see in this passage. The first stage of the first step of sin is forgetting God. Look, uh, look back at verse 10. Let me read it. It says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It says there was this generation that came on the scene that didn't know the Lord or didn't know what he had done. Now, all scholars basically say oh, the people knew what the Lord had done because obviously it, with the people of Israel, they, they knew about the exodus. They knew about parting, the parting of the Red Sea. When it says that they didn't know him, it basically means... They didn't see him as important anymore. They stopped seeing him as important. Jonathan Edwards is a North North American theologian. Some of you may have studied him in some of your classes. And he says this really is the main spiritual problem in all of us, where what you know in your head isn't real to your heart. What you know in your head doesn't connect with your actual heart. It's kind of like that Mumford & Sons song, uh, Winter Winds, you know what I'm talking about? And my head told my heart, let love grow. But my heart told my head, this time no. You're right. It's say, he, they're basically saying your heart and your head, there's a disconnect. Your, your head says one thing, but it's not real to your heart. It's not real to your actual life. Now, for some of you, uh, you know exactly what this is like, right? Where you 
forget about God really for the bulk of your day. You just sort of forget that he is there. You forget that he exists. And so you go through your day and you just sort of forget that he actually loves you. You forget that he actually cares about you. And even if you consider yourself a Christian, you really are a practical atheist in the sense that practically speaking, you live as if he doesn't exist. You go through your day and just forget that he's there. You forget that he loves you. You forget that he may have actual opinions about the way that you live your life. And really, when you forget God, that really is the first domino tipping that leads to this disastrous life that we're going to keep talking about with the cycle. That's really the first stage of sin is forgetting God. And here's the second stage. It's forsaking God. Uh, Look back at the passage in verse um, uh, 11 through 13 is where I get this. In verse 11, it says that the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that that phrase is going to pop up all throughout the book of Judges. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you think, I think, that means that they like went out and went on like gruesome, murderous rampages. That's not what it means. All that that phrase means is that they found something more important to them than God. That's what it means to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They found something more important to them than God. Here's where I get this from. Look at, uh, look at how verses 11 through 13 clarify this. It says that they abandon the Lord and they start serving other gods, namely Baal and Ashtoreth. Okay, what in the world is that? Baal was the local Canaanite god of weather. And what what this meant was that supposedly this god Baal controlled the weather. Now, for an agricultural society, weather was very important because if you have bad weather, you don't have crops. If you don't have crops, you don't have food and you don't have money. You have no income. So really, the bottom line was Baal really was the ultimate provider, supposedly, of money and food. Ashtoreth was the local goddess of fertility, she supposedly determined whether or not you had children. And the way that you worshipped her was that you went to a temple or you went in front of a statue of her and had sex. Some of you are like, now I know why they were into that religion. (laughs) But supposedly, I mean, this is what, she was in control of whether or not you could have children because children in this society were extremely important. If you didn't have children as a couple, then when you got older, you had nobody to to take care of you. Children were essentially social security. And if, if, you, if you and your village, your town, didn't have a lot of children, and the, and the village down the street from you did, this means in 15 years they have an army and you don't, and they take you over. So children was, was uh, you know, social security, it was protection. And so when it says that the Israelites served and followed and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths, it says that they're, it, they're basically tipping their hand to say, Here's what it is that I'm really interested in. It's health and wealth. The thing that I'm really interested in is money and it's sex and it's comfort and it's security. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you uh, worship something else that isn't God. It's when you live for something else that isn't God. Whenever you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that's idolatry. I'll say it again. Whenever you look to some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that's idolatry. Two quick implications of this before we move on. For those of you in the room who, who don't consider yourselves Christians, may not consider yourselves religious or, you know, that, you, that you, you know, would go to church or anything like that, you have to see that you worship something. And you say, what are you talking about? I don't worship anything. It's not like I go to church and participate in worship or anything like that. 
but you are living for something, right? I mean, something has grabbed your heart, something has grabbed your attention, and that is really what your life is about. You are living for power or money or grades or your family or something, whatever it is. You're looking to something and saying, that's where I'm going to tap meaning from and purpose, and that's where I'm going to get joy and happiness from. Whatever that is, that's your God. That's what you worship. Don't be so naive to think just because you don't consider yourself religious or go to church, that doesn't mean that you're actually worshiping something because you do. We all do. But the other implication of this is if you do consider yourself a Christian, you may claim to worship the God of the Bible, but you may actually really be living for something else. You may say that you're a Christian, but the thing, that's re- the thing that you're really living for, the thing that's really grabbed your heart is, is power or sex or pleasure or popularity. So the question is, what is it for you? What is more important to you than the God of the Bible? What, what is it that you have to have, that you have to keep? Whatever that is, that's your God. That's what you're worshiping. That's what you're really living for. And that's, that's the first step in this cycle of, of sin. It, it, the first step is sin. Two branches, forgetting God and forsaking God. But let's keep going. Here's the second step. Slavery. Look at verses uh, 14 through 15. This explains that God allows for the people of Israel to actually become slaves to foreign nations. When they start pursuing other gods, God lets them be enslaved. And here's the principle behind that. Whenever you start worshiping anything that is not God, it's going to lead to your slavery. Whenever you worship anything that is not God, it leads to your slavery. Becky Pippert is an um, author, theologian, and I just want to read you an, uh, an excerpt from one of her books. It's unbelievably brilliant. Here's what she says. Whatever controls you is your Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. I think that's really profound if you think about it. Because consider this, some of you worship and really live for sex and romance. And because that's what you've given your heart to, you now find yourself addicted to pornography, enslaved to it, and you can't stop. You can't stop. Even when you want to try to stop, even when you try to break free, try to fight against it, you can't because you're a slave. Or if you are worshiping sex and, and, and romance, this is why you cannot stop messing around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You know, you, know you, you, you do it, and then you have this sort of the guilt fest, and you talk about it, and you make these resolutions to say we're not going to do it again. We put all these rules in place, and you go back and do it again. And it actually starts escalating, right? It's because you're a slave. You're, you're worshiping something that's not God, and that's what's enslaving you. Another example. Some of you worship the acceptance and the approval that you get from other people, that your life really is lived so that other people like you. And don't you see that if this is you, and this is me, by the way, this actually controls everything about you. This controls what you wear. This controls how you present yourself to people. This, this controls you in the sense that you have to feel like you're always managing other people's perception of you. And as long as you're controlled by this, you, you'll never be able to do confrontation with your friends. And you'll never be able to accept criticism. It's because you're not free. You're a slave. For some of you... Uh, if you cannot go out and have a good time with your friends without having a drink, you're a slave. And you say, well, I, 
I don't have to have a drink. I can not. Then not. Then don't do it. If it's, if it's not that big of a deal, then just stop. Take a month and don't have a drink when you go out with your friends. And you say, but I don't want to do that. That sounds lame. Like, I, I, but I could stop if I wanted to. But the fact that you can't stop and you don't want to says that you're a slave. You're controlled by it. You can't stop because you're a slave. And the fact that you are, the, the slavery is a symptom of something deeper. And the thing that's deeper is that you're worshiping something else. You're living for something else that isn't God. And that is why your life is a mess. That's why my life is a mess. This is where we are, that whatever you worship owns you. It controls you, and it spins your life out of control. So the first step is sin. The second step is slavery. Here's the third step. Supplication. Look at verse 18. The, The people cry out to the Lord for deliverance. That's what the word supplication means, that they cry out. And they would pray and they would look at God and say, okay, God, we've really blown it. We've screwed up. We, we uh, have feasted on things that are killing us and we've abandoned you, the source of life itself. Help us, please, you know, we've really, we've blown it. And here's the thing that's crazy is that God actually hears them and he responds. The thing that's so beautiful about the God of the Bible is that he... Um, is that he actually hears you when you cry out to him. When you are enslaved to the sinful, messed up life that you've created, he actually still hears you and responds. He doesn't sit there with his arms crossed and say, you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. He hears you and he responds. And here's how we know he responds, because of the, with, because of the fourth step, which is salvation. L- look in verse 16. It says that God hears their cries and he raises up judges, where we get the title from the book Judges. Now, whenever you hear that word judges in the book of Judges, don't think of like a civil court guy with like a robe and a gavel. That's not what that word means. The word judges in this book means military hero, warrior. Think Jack Bauer, Chuck Norris, something like that. That's what happens. And so when they cry out to God, God raises up these military heroes and they come on the scene and kick tail and liberate the people of Israel from their political bondage and free them to do what now? To start worshiping God again, to experiencing his grace, and to flourish as human beings. And that's what happens. God very graciously redeems them, saves them, and things are good for a while. And then they go right back to the sin, and the cycle happens again. And this is going to happen over and over and over through the book. And... Um, Tell me if you think this sounds familiar. Tough spot. God saves you by his grace. Things get good. You go right back to the sin. And does that sound familiar? And it sounds familiar to me. That's my life. Why is it that we turn from God when things start going well? It's because we don't need him, right? He's been useful to us. He got us out of the jam. Things are better in our life. We don't feel the pain. We don't feel the distress anymore. And so we don't need him anymore. And so when, when we turn from God when things are going well because we don't need him. And then when things are going bad, we turn to God. Now, why is that? Because we want to keep our sin, but we want him to uh, you know, change all the uncomfortable consequences of our sin. And this just shows that we don't really want him. We just want what he can do for us. We don't want him. We don't see him as beautiful. We see him as useful. My wife and I have a 16-month-old daughter now, and putting her down for naps is 
one of the scariest parts of my day. Because when, you, know, you rock her to sleep and you kind of give her a bottle of milk and you, and you put her in her crib. But the problem is, is that you've got to get from the crib to outside of the room without her waking up. Because if she wakes up, she starts crying and you've got to do the whole process again. It's total headache. But the other problem is, is that the crib is buried deep in the room. And so once you put her in the crib, you turn around, you've got a whole room to get through, and there's obstacles and toys, and if you step on Elmo, he'll start singing, and you do not want Elmo to start singing. You want to destroy the old McDonald singing Elmo. But anyway, put down Zoe Kate, our daughter, in her crib, and turn around, and you really do have to act like a ninja to get out of, to get out of the room. And you get out of the room, and then all you got to do is close the door. But the only problem is the door squeaks. The, the hinges, something screwed up about the hinges. And so you close it and it's making these loud squeaks and so you try to do it really quick but then you can't do it too quick because it risks slamming into the wall. It's just insane, chaotic. So it squeaks, thankfully does not wake up the daughter. When she wakes up later that afternoon, I go back and thankfully under my kitchen sink I have a can of WD-40. And I spray the WD-40 on the hinges and life is now better. And what do I do with the WD-40? Put it back in the kitchen sink and don't think about it again. And really, this is how a lot of us relate to God. We pull him out of the kitchen sink when we need him. He fixes our life. Things are better. And we really have no more use for him. So we put him back on the shelf until we need him again. And that just shows that we don't find him beautiful. We just find him useful, which means we don't really know him yet. So that's what the cycle is. Sin, slavery, supplication, salvation. Over and over and round and round we go. Now, before I talk about how to get out of this cycle, I want to make one more observation. If you look at the end of this passage, verse 18 and 19, let me just read it. Things get interesting. It says, 18 and 19, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Here's what it says. When this cycle enters into a second rotation, they become more corrupt. Did you notice that? And so what I want you to see is that this is not just a cycle that's going nowhere. This is actually a downward spiral. That it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so the book of Judges is really like watching a toilet bowl flushing. It's just going down and down and down. And this cycle, as you're going to see, if you stick around the semester, is going to happen over and over and over again. And the book is going to get gradually worse and worse and worse. To the point, when you get to the end of the book, there's going to be complete anarchy. There's going to be like total political and religious chaos. And chapter 19 is really the most horrific climactic endings of any story that I know. In fact, another RUF campus minister at a different school, when they were teaching through the book of Judges, he said after he read the story in Judges 19, a a girl from the group came up after him and said, when you read that, I wanted to throw up. I know that makes you want to read it now, and you should. (laughs) Judges chapter 19, we'll get there at the end of the semester. When the seniors are graduating, it'll be a, a weird ending for you. But this is, um, this, is, this is really the downward spiral that this book is talking about. And some of you know that downward spiral all too well, right? Where, where it feels like things are actually getting worse for you. 
As you try this Christian thing out, you find yourself becoming angrier quicker. You find yourself going farther and farther with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You find yourself partying more. You find yourself becoming more self-righteous, more angry, more hard to get along with other people. It's because you are in this downward spiral. And, and, and the question is, okay, why is that? Why is it for people like me who consider themselves Christians that, th- that this is really our experience, that we find ourselves going down and down and down and down? Here's why I think. I, I think because as Christians, even after we've experienced God and experienced his grace, one of the reasons why we run right back to our sin is because we know that we can pull out the grace card. And we say, well, I can do this because I know God's going to forgive me. Do you know what that's like? If that's the logic of your heart, do you know what that's like? It's like this. Let's say you have a friend who is very unhealthily uh, obese and overweight. And let's say, you know, they're, they're, uh, it's to the point where it's actually, uh, their, their life is jeopardized by their weight. And let's say they're rushed to the doctor and, and the doctor was able to perform a, a, a surgery, triple bypass surgery, liposuction, whatever, and saves their life actually saves their life. And you go and visit your friend the next day. And uh, you're talking to them in the, in the hospital room. And you say, man, your life is saved. I mean, how do you feel? Like, I'm so excited for you. You're, you're getting ready to get out in a couple of hours. What do you want to do? And they say, okay, first thing I want to do, I want to hit up that golden corral. And I want to get a, a bucket of fried chicken. I want to pour a boatload of gravy and butter all over it. I want to get all the fixings at Golden Corral. And then I want to hit up, once I'm finished all that and feel like I can't eat anymore, I'm going to hit up that all-you-can-eat ice cream bar and load it up sweet frog style until I just feel like I need to like pass out. You would look at your friend and say, but I'm confused. I mean, wasn't that sort of food what was killing you? I mean, your life was, was saved. Why would you want to run back on and feast in that which was killing you? I, I'm confused. I don't understand. That's what it's like. If you have experienced God's grace, the logic of your heart can't be, I want to go indulge in the thing that was killing me before. Because that's how ridiculous it sounds. Grace does not come to you God does not extend his grace to you so that you can feel no guilt now when you get hammered. God does not extend grace to you so that you can just feel no guilt now when you are unwilling to forgive your roommate. Grace comes to you to free you, to free you, to liberate you from that sort of miserable, death-entrenched lifestyle. It frees you. It actually changes you. When you have tasted and experienced his grace... That actually changes your heart and gives you an appetite now for that which is good and beautiful and holy and righteous. And it actually starts making you hate your sin and hating sin. You want to fight against it. You want to do anything you can. You want to repent of it often. Not go back to it and feast on it because it will kill you. It's not that, if this is you, this is not just that you're confused about what Christianity is. This, This just means you're not a Christian. Tasting God's grace leads you to say no to that and say yes to that which is life-giving. That is what this cycle is. And maybe you're in it. Maybe I know I've been in this cycle before. So here's the question. How do we get out? How do we get out of this cycle? Well, I'll be briefer on this point, as I promised. Let me read you verse 7. The secret is in verse 7. It says, The people serve the Lord. 
This is talking about the generation before the cycle started. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. That's, that's the thing I want to focus on, is that the, the generation before all these spiritual downward spirals started happening is that they served the Lord. That means that they were devoted to him, that they worshipped him. They didn't just find him useful, they found him beautiful. They followed him and they followed his word. Why? Did you catch it in verse 7? It says at the end of verse 7 that they saw all the great things that he had done for them, which raises the question, okay, what's that talking about? What are the great things he has done for them? Well, the people of Israel obviously experienced the Lord coming in and breaking into time and space to free them from slavery to Egypt, which if you're familiar with the prince of Egypt and the, the story of the Exodus, he break, ten plagues, breaks them out of Egyptian slavery, crosses the Red Sea, breaks them out. Because they saw and experienced God's love for them, they were so moved and so transformed by that that now they wanted to love him. Now they wanted to live for him. God will only become beautiful to you. He will only become beautiful to you when you begin to see what he has first done for you. As long as the engine of your life is, what can I do for God? You'll never find him beautiful. The driving engine of your life has to be, what has he done for me? Because as beautiful and as amazing as this was for the people of Israel, God promised that he would do something even more amazing. Centuries later after this, God breaks into time and space again in the person of Jesus. And he lives this perfectly beautiful life, and he goes and dies a death on a cross. Why? To take the blame for you to take the hit for you, to take the bullet for you. He receives all the criticism and all the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve on the cross. This is a TV show that Catherine and I are really into these days. I don't think I can recommend it in good conscience, but it's an amazing show. It's called Breaking Bad. Wow. (laughs) Got a reaction over there. Breaking Bad is the show about um, some drug dealers. And Jesse is a character on the show who's this drug dealer. He's a meth addict. In this one particular episode, he uh, is coming down off of this really bad meth trip. And he goes home to stay with his parents. And his parents are not really you know, con- you know, excited about this. They know the kind of life that he lives. And to make it worse, he- Jesse has a younger brother who is like walking the straight and narrow, who like, uh, gets straight A's. He has all these awards in his room. He- he's like uh, the perfect kid. And he's like, Jesse's like the strung out you know, drug dealer. And so one day the housekeeper finds a joint in Jesse's room and gives it to Jesse's parents. So, when, so the parents sit down Jesse, and they basically just unload on him. They basically say, like, you are a disappointment as a son. This has happened over and over and over again, where, where, where we give you a chance, we give you a break, you come into our house, we put you up, and you take advantage of our kindness, and then you go out and you sell drugs again and just make us look like fools, and we're done. We are done. No more of this. And he's just taking it the whole time, taking it. And they say, you're out. And they kick him out. And as he's leaving, he, he, they say, take this with you. And, and he takes the joint with him. And he goes out to the street, and he's waiting, on a, waiting for a cab out on the front, uh, front of the house. And his little brother comes out to say bye to him. And the little brother says, can I have my joint back? 
and you find out that Jesse, the drug dealer, just took the entire blame for his snot-nosed, undeserving little brother. Now, as a viewer, as you're watching this show, the, the whole time you're watching the show, you kind of like Jesse as a character. I mean, you kind of feel sorry for him. But when that happened, you drew closer to him. And you, you started liking, liking him, started rooting for him, even though he's a drug dealer. There was something about that. There was something about that that activated something in our hearts. And you know exactly what this is like. Whenever you watch a show, anytime you watch a movie and there's a character who takes a bullet for another person, anytime you see a character who dies, who takes the blame, who takes the criticism for something, somebody else, something about that activates something in your heart. Now, if that is true and that is fictitional, how much more so should it activate our hearts when we see that Jesus actually took the bullet for us? He actually took that which was trying to kill you and undo you. He took the blame. He took the criticism. He took the judgment that you and I deserve. He took it. When you begin to see that, to the degree that you see what he has done for you, to that degree will you break out of this deteriorating spiral of sin. To the degree that you are moved by his grace, to that degree will you be pulled out of this quicksand, deteriorating spiral of sin. So do you see it? Do you see what he has done for you? Are you moved by that? Does that activate anything in you? Take another look and consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would melt us and that you would move us and transform us, that we would see and behold the beauty of your grace, that you have held out your son who was crushed on a cross where we deserve to be, And instead, you have handed out grace and life to us. And I pray, Father, would that melt and move our hearts to not want to return to the ways of sin and the ways of death, but to actually live in light of your grace and live for beauty and live for justice and live for glory and beauty and love. Would you do that? Would you change us from the inside out? That would be our prayer. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.